This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Dave Green is joining us. How you doing today, Dave? I'm just fine, Bob. Thank you for asking. Do you like to fish or, and or hunt? No, my dad tried to get me into hunting. I just had no desire to kill animals. And But no fishing either? I suppose that would apply. Uh, I, can't sit, I can't sit still that long. Oh, I, well, as you know, fishing's big in my family. Let's get the plug in right away. <laughs> my son-in-law <laughs> operates, and it's online, flyshack.com. He's a purveyor of, of flies for uh, fly fishing and other uh, fishing implements. Also has a store up in uh, Gloversville, New York. Right near the uh, four corners, but that's be, not that's not a plug. By the way. Yes, be that as it may, I have for you today an historical fishing story. All right, that's a first, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it, it has something to do with hunting, but it sort of focuses on the fishing. It ran recently as a column uh, in the Daily Gazette, my focus on history column. But I have kind of other information that I'm going to plug in to this little chit chat uh, on this story. And it begins as follows. Carpet manufacturers Stephen, John, and Laddie Sanford of Amsterdam loved their horse farm in the town of Amsterdam. Hurricane of Farms, they raised racehorses. One of them won the Kentucky Derby. They won many races at Saratoga and so forth. So, so that's how those rich folks occupied their leisure time, if you will. However, other movers and shakers in the Amsterdam area, Mohawk Valley, Capital District, and beyond, as they sometimes say on the radio, did not race horses, but did go a great distance, starting in the early 1900s, continuing toward the end of that century. These uh, kind of well-connected folks traveled over 350 miles to fish, hunt, and enjoy the outdoors. Founded in 1906, the Bourbonnais Kiamika Hunting and Fishing Club of Canada had a large Amsterdam area contingent. Stop me right here on this, Dave. I'm really not sure what either of those words specifically means. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Bourbonnais. Think bourbon the drink and add the nays of magazine at the end. Or not magazine, a mayonnaise at the end. Uh, I would Google it, but I can't spell it. Yeah, Bourbonnais, and then Kiamika is a, a Native uh, American term, uh, and I think refers to the an Indian nation that lived in, in this part of Quebec where the club did its hunting and fishing. The men of the club included industrialists, merchants, lawyers, doctors, and maybe good for this uh, club getting a lot of publicity over the years, the publishers of Amsterdam's Recorder newspaper belonged to the club. Uh, that was a family named Klein, and then eventually there were people named Lefebvre, and, and they, the folks from the newspaper, the, the guys that ran it, they belonged to the Bourbonnais Kiamika Hunting and Fishing Club. There also were club members from Johnstown, Schenectady, Albany, Troy, New England, Kansas, and Canada. According to a newspaper account, the club leased about 200 square miles of territory in LaBelle County in Quebec province. The most famous uh, person, I mean, uh, famous in New York State, I guess, who uh, kind of figures in a story about this hunting and fishing club 
was the New York State controller named Charles Goss, G-A-U-S, of Albany, Charles Goss. He, he came into the news, and there were several clips about this, because he died while on an excursion uh, to the preserve or reserve of, of the uh, Bourbonnais Kiamika Hunting and Fishing Club. He died in 1909. And the newspaper story even indicated that Gauze's family had unsuccessfully argued against him making the journey because he was not well. And the journey at the time required a 40-mile wagon trip from the nearest railroad link, Dave. Well, you gotta, you got to love it, Bob. <laughs> I guess he did, I guess. Uh, he did love it, but, you know, and he passed away doing it. In fact, another interesting um, uh, expression of the love that these guys had for their hunting and fishing club, an unnamed club member who could not attend an outing of the club from the Amsterdam area in 1913 because he was busy busy with his business, wrote a lament, which was printed in the recorder. Now, remember I mentioned the publishers of the recorder were members of the club. My hunch is it was one of those guys that's making this lament, but it, they didn't um, you know, identify uh, the speaker. But he wrote, quote, There are fewer days in my life that I can recall with greater happiness than those spent on the annual hunts on our old campground. The exciting sport, the complete relaxation from all business and domestic cares, the jolly fellowship, the excitement and exhilaration, little political incorrectness comes in here now, Dave, the killing of the game and the landing of the trout, the sense of freedom, the odor of the virgin forests, the beautiful scenery, the calm lakes, the picturesque streams gliding down these little rivers in our canoes over the small rapids, sitting here at my desk, apparently bound down by the chase for the mighty dollar, I can still picture to myself all the attractions, beauties, and joyous feelings of those happy days. Seems to me it took one vacation to get there. <laughs> Probably. Well, they had, you didn't go for just a weekend. You know? I guess. No, you didn't spend like a weekend at the Cape or something like that. That same year, 1913, in Amsterdam, Conover's Bookstore, which uh, still exists as a business in Amsterdam, Seely Conover Company, well-known Amsterdam name, the original Seely Conover, I believe, had been mayor of the city once, but it was a stationary store, but also a bookstore. And in 1913, in their store window, uh, the newspaper noted, they displayed two trophy Canadian gray trout. One of them, it said, was caught by broom manufacturer Charles Howard of Fort Hunter. I do have to ask, Bob, did it wiggle when you talked to it? <laughs> Maybe come, it on. come on, you have that coming. <laughs> no doubt. <clears throat> well, this the Charles Howard connection was another way I kind of glommed onto this story because I remember years ago when I worked at WVTL, I had a contest having people send in Amsterdam area stories. And this uh, woman who lives, I think, in Burn Hills wrote about her 
ancestor or husband's ancestor who was the man who, <laughs> this Charles Howard, who caught this famous prize-winning trout, and he was a broom manufacturer. All right. They didn't mess around when they went fishing. During an outing the next year, uh, the Amsterdam contingent and others, I presume, at Lake Simon in that uh, preserve that they went to or reserve, uh, the club members caught 447 gray trout and 75 brook trout. The newspaper story went to great lengths to explain that this wasn't just, you know, like mass animal killing. It, you know, accounted for where the trout went. You know, they gave the trout to members of the community up there, the guides and their husbands and so, so are you are you saying that even even at the time they had to give a bit of a political correctness? Yeah, statement? well, you figure, you know, they're putting this stuff in the paper. You know, most of the readers are uh, you know working in carpet mills and other factories. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Maybe get a week off or, or oh, not. You know, <laughs> yeah. What are the rest of the world doing? <laughs> and the hoi polloi are taking this trip three hundred miles up to Canada. Now, I don't know if. That kind of resentment had anything to do with the story I'm about to relate, but uh, th- this is fairly uh, recent, you know, in terms of this club. Uh, this happened in 1954. I mean, all through the years, this club exists, and every year there's a story in the recorder about their annual meeting of the Bourbonnais Kayamika Hunting and Fishing Club, and usually some account of what they caught that year when they went on the annual outing. But the newspapers reported that in 1954, six physicians from the Amsterdam area escaped serious injury when their railway car, which I learned from another source, was probably the one that was nicknamed the Kalamazoo. I don't think it was a train. It was some kind of maybe self-propelled thing, you know, like a mm-hmm. budliner or something like that. Yeah, I do believe they produced those. Yeah. So the Kalamazoo jumped the tracks of a private railway as this party was coming home from a fishing trip. A switch had been thrown to a position that caused the derailment and sabotage was suspected, but I never found any follow-up story as to whether anybody was ever prosecuted. But the physicians on board, you know, to me, reads like a laundry list of the uh, physicians I knew from my childhood, including my very own doctor, who was Charles K. Tomlinson. He was on board along with Edward Bogdan, George Ferguson, and Leonard McGuigan. These were all doctors from Amsterdam, along with a Dr. John Butkus of Broad Alban and John Sponable of Johnstown. And then uh, coverage, or my ability to cover this uh, story, uh, took a decided turn for the positive in discovering the following, looking at the clippings. I mean, most of the men who belonged to this club were... Uh, again, movers and shakers, they were kind of well-off. They tended to be what are sometimes called wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. But I noticed in the coverage of the club that after World War II, several Amsterdam Polish-Americans are going on these on these ja- jaunts, including, you know, ones you might expect. Fred Partika, he was a well-known lawyer, I believe, Ambrose Krupsack, he was a pharmacist. His daughter, Mary Ann Krupsack, became lieutenant governor of New York State. But another uh, man who went on the club outings was Ted Peichel, who was a, a boat shop owner on Amsterdam's Park Hill. 
And I think it's a good time to take a little break, uh, and then we'll get into the story of Ted Peichel, as told in large part uh, by his son, who's still alive and who I I know, uh, and a friend of mine, uh, Tom Peichel. We'll hear, hear that in a moment. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. We welcome your support. In fact, we hope for your support on the on the podcast. We have a GoFundMe campaign. You know how those things work, don't you, Dave? The uh, GoFundMe campaigns? Yeah. Yes, you, you ask for a little bit of cash to keep things going, and you hope for the best. That's true. And what you do is you go to uh, the website uh, on the GoFundMe address, gofundme.com forward slash historians2017. And it's very easy from there on in to make a donation. Yes, you do need to use your a credit card. If you'd rather not do that, it seems cumbersome to you or, or whatever, we happily accept donations by mail. Uh, just uh, make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to uh, Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York. That's 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York. Uh, back now to the fish story, uh, which we're uh, spinning out here on the Historian's Podcast, the story of the Bourbonnais Kiamika Hunting and Fishing Club, which was a private game reserve up in Quebec, Canada, which was frequented by a number of folks from the Amsterdam area and the Capital District for many years of the 20th century. Now, Tom Peichel, you know Tom Peichel. You've met him, I believe, Dave. Yes, I have. Yes, Tom. is He's quite a character in and of his own right. He's a musician. He spends some of his time in France, some of his time at his family's uh, home on Park Hill in Amsterdam, and is is kind of an outdoorsman himself, as was his father. And Tom, I think, said to me, quote, his father wasn't a full member, but went off and is a guest. And that's probably my sense that uh, Ted Peichel, you know, that you, if I was a a doctor or a lawyer from Amsterdam, I'd be happy to have Ted Peichel in the fishing party going up to the uh, reserve because, you know, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> he's actually... So, it's always a good thing, though. <laughs> it's good to have people like that. And so I'm going to quote at length from... Uh, and in my story in the Gazette, I, I did use some of Tom's best quotes, but if, again, if you have met Tom, he does uh, tend to... Uh, he's very eloquent, but he... Uh, it does go on, as, as I do, too. So he told me a lot, many more things than I could fit in the newspaper column, and we're going to put some of them in here. Um, Tom says he went to the reserve in Canada twice with his father. Once, he said, while the club was still in operation. And his first uh, you know, quotes have to do with that earlier trip. Tom Peichel, uh, you know, a young man uh, going up to the... Uh, Bourbonnais Kiamika Hunting Reserve uh, with his dad, Ted Peichel. He said the um, one thing that struck him up there, I went twice uh, the first time with my father, Fred Partika, senior and junior, now the second, and Jimmy Campbell. Those were the members of their, their party. Uh, Jimmy Campbell, Tom notes, passed away at about age 63. Their guide was a, a Native American named Philippe, who paddled us about, Tom writes, in a birch bark canoe, the gunnels of which were about three inches above the waterline. He portaged it. You know about that, don't you, Dave? You carry, 
It's something to do with having to pick something heavy up and move. Know. Yeah. Have you ever portaged a canoe? No, I can't say that. Well, he portaged it, Tom writes, with Rick, Partika, and me to Bogdan Lake, which I guess was named after Dr. Bogdan. Um, Philippe smoked a lot, writes Tom, rolling his own. His English was quite broken. I don't know how he broke it or why he couldn't fix it. <laughs> During the portage, he said, lungs no pump. At lunch, he asked us, want Coca-Cola? And Tom says, he, Tom, hooked into a nice red trout, but he blew the netting. Sounds like that's fisherman talk. Yeah, it does sound that blew way. The yeah. By the camp, Tom writes, my father missed a huge walleye, or at least that's what he said, since he'd gone out in the rowboat alone, the famous one that got away. We all caught, caught a bunch of both, I guess walleyes and whatever else that got away, uh, and brought them home in boxes of dry ice. And Tom writes, I remember going to Quant's, which was a, a food store and became a food distributor ultimately in Amsterdam. It was bought out by another company. But he went to Quant's, where Quant's had small freezer compartments they would rent to stock the customer's fish and game. Now, that's another thing, Dave. Have you ever had any uh, game dinners? Yeah, I think probably most people have had venison at some time, right? Or, or at least you you are offered. Yes, you were off. Sometimes and you're you're really stuck with that moral issue at that point. Yes, it's staring you in the face. Or what is it going to taste like if not chicken? It tastes. It's a bit stronger, let's say, than a steak. Yes, but nothing outrageous. And if somebody put it on your plate. Along with some steak, you probably wouldn't know. I remember, well, this is taking us a little far afield, but you remember Jack Riccardi? Yes. And Stacy Horwitz? Yes. Who worked at, uh, we all with worked us together. at WGY. Yeah. And one time, the three of us went out on behalf of the radio station to somebody's game restaurant. You know, the idea was we were going to go there and, and then talk about it as they served us various things. <laughs> Exotic foods. A bigger, a bigger moral issue. And I think that was when people first got the idea that I, I tended to drink a bit. Because <laughs> Stacy and Jack said, every time they bring you something, you drink another glass of wine. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah wash this down. <laughs> yeah, i got to do something. Well, anyway, back to the uh, Canadian uh, camp. But, but think about it. Okay, that's that's the that's the uh, the animal side of it. The fish side, you know, we're still going quite strong. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yes. Except for you. Yeah. Well, I like fish. Oh, do you? I, well, I do now. I mean, I with my recent health problems, I've uh, yeah, I eat fish. <laughs> I don't still don't like it as much, but I found that a lot of fish doesn't taste like anything. That could be that can be true. Yeah. So you, it's whatever you add to it that kind of gives it the flavor. Yeah, it's like here's a test, Bob. One is haddock and one is cod. Do you have any idea? No, no idea. What's I would no, no. I I get both. I'm always asking Audrey, will I like this fish? Oh, yeah, you'll like it. You'll like it. <laughs> your, gu- your guide to eating fish. <laughs> yes. Well, back to Tom and his uh, parent, or his, yeah, his parent and his friends up in uh, the Bourbonnais Kiamika Reserve. He said at the main lodge at Lac du Sourd, Tom will probably complain about my pronunciation, yeah, yeah, yeah. which Tom has translated for us as Deaf Man's Lake, at the main lodge, they had a windowless ice house that was built under the trees for the shade, a bit down the hill from the imposing camp building toward the lake, in which the big, chunky blocks sawed out, sawed out of the lake were stored under a thick pile of damp pine sawdust 
that smelled pungent from its rosin content in the cool, humid air. Unforgettable. That just the explanation is enough. I know. Tom really creates quite a word picture there. The second time I was there, up at the Reserve in Canada, was to celebrate my father Ted's 80th birthday. And by then, I presume, it no longer was the preserve of the um, the club. And I'll explain what, what happened uh, in, in a moment. But th- th- he went on this trip with, uh, Tom did, with his son, Simon. I think Simon, he says, was nine years old. I have a picture of Simon looking up at a road sign indicating the road to Lake Simon, because you may not remember, but there was a Lake Simon in the reserve. Our, um, see, you may, oh, you may have noticed a lake trout uh, that I have posted at my home in Amsterdam, he, he said. Uh, Tom also uh, noted that the, uh, what has happened to the park with this, this land, the park that the Bourbonnaise Kiamika folks subleased uh, was owned originally by the Singer Corporation. You know the sewing machine mm-hmm. folks, mm-hmm. a lot, you know, very wealthy family. All the, all the big buck money at the time, right? And so they leased the Bourbonnaise Kiamika area to the uh, club, but somewhere along the way, and I want to say probably was somewhere in the eighties, because there were still clippings about the club into the nineteen seventies in the newspapers. But in the nineteen eighties, by then, the um, reserve was owned by the provincial government of Quebec, and it's a huge park, which Tom says is called Papineau Labelle. I don't know if you remember, it's in Labelle County, so it's now, I mean, you can still go there, and it's still a reserve. I've been going back and forth. Every so often I say preserve, but Tom has pointed out to me this is actually a reserve. A preserve is where they don't allow you to hunt and fish, a reserve is where they do. Uh, it's where they encourage you to uh, hunt and fish, if you will. All right. Never thought about it. So Tom said in the more recent days, they, they rented a campsite on Golden Blossom Pond. They explained to us that they limited the number of people that could fish. And that early morning, they had the campers draw numbers from a hat because there were too many people. Unfortunately, we weren't among them who could fish. And this is sad. When Simon saw that, of course, he's a grown man now. Uh, but when Simon saw that at age nine years old, he began to cry. That seemed the appropriate thing to do. <laughs> yeah. We had a canoe. Well, does that bring a whole line of thinking to thought here? Uh, <laughs> I know. Back when we were kids, what made you cry? But anyway, I want the story. Okay, well, that's, in the, that's a good, good story. Yeah. What makes you cry? Well, that's what made Simon cry at that point. He was had his heart set on fishing. But... Dad and Granddad had another plan. We had a canoe on the Voyager and told the agent we wouldn't need to pay the rental fee for the provided rowboat. But they said even if we used our canoe, we'd still have to pay for theirs. Result, our canoe traveled about 600 miles without ever having been taken down off the roof rack of the Voyager. And Tom writes, quote, Guess the Quebecois still have some Gallic traits, unquote. The next day, they ended up going to the big lake. They did let us use a boat there, you know, the boat that the reserve had. 
but the fish knew we were coming and hid. <laughs> we tried to certainly. Find, yeah, we tried to find the old lodge of the club, but did not. They probably demolished it, like they did the Adirondack Forever Wild Ranger cabins. We did catch a couple of nice trout on the pond the next day, and as we were coming in, we spotted one humongous snapper on the bottom, just off the bank. I nudged him with the oar, and he slowly paddled off. Ha ha. <laughs> I don't know. I just got a kick out of the way Tom ends that. That's interesting. Yeah, the fish. This seems like such such an expedition Oh, to get all of us. Yes. I mean, we're talking uh, going hundreds of miles. Oh, somewhere else in Tom's uh, communications with me on this, he does say he believes that the Papineau-Labelle Reserve is, I, he said, twice as big as the Adirondack Preserve. Well, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. Quebec's a big province. I, I think. So that's the story. We know so little about them, and they live so close. That's true. Well, these Amsterdam area movers and shakers, they got to know a little bit more about Quebec. They were in it. Going up there. Yeah, and by the way, just one step backward for one second, Bob. Should we ever talk about crying? Make sure we talk about crying and yelling for mom at the same time. Yelling for mom. Yeah. Mommy. What? Mommy. Oh, yes. Yeah. All right. Mommy. Yeah. Back to Canada. Well, actually, that's the end of the Canada story. But I do have one other uh, item to bring up, sort of history in the news. Uh, This appeared in several newspapers and also on uh, the Great New York History blog. Just want to let folks know that a group has formed in Amsterdam to push for restoration of Guy Park Manor, a building dating back to 1766 that's been closed since 2011 when it suffered severe damage during Tropical Storm Irene. Of course, hurricanes have been much in the news of late. And I do remember that. There was some, they thought the whole building was going to go, but it didn't, this uh, building from the 1700s, but it uh, was severely damaged. The, there's a group been formed called the Guy Park Manor Restoration Group, comprising Amsterdam residents and local historians interested in seeing the historic building return to its former glory according to spokesman and previous Historians podcast guest Norm Bolin of the Fort Plain Museum. Members of the committee are drawn from Mohawk Country, which is a promotional group of the American Revolution sites in the Mohawk Valley, Historic Amsterdam League, the Amsterdam Chapter, the Daughters of the American Revolution, and the Old Fort Johnson Historic Landmark. Norm Boland said Montgomery County is home to more colonial American and Native American heritage sites than anywhere in upstate New York. You know, I think he's got a point there. But he also adds, quote, and nobody knows about it, unquote. The group's eventual aim is to open the manor as a historic site with exhibits and tours that provide insight into the area's colonial history. Boland said organizers hope to boost tourism in the region that will dovetail with other tourism initiatives like the Mohawk Gateway Overlook Bridge. Before 2011, Guy Park Manor, again, Amsterdam's oldest building, uh, before the big storm of 2011, it was home to the Walter Elwood Museum, which was forced to vacate in 2011 
after Guy Park Manor was severely damaged. The Elwood has relocated. It's now uh, in uh, factory buildings, former factory buildings, up on Church Street in Amsterdam. And apparently, I'm going off the news story here, apparently the state, the State Canal Corporation, controls this uh, whole thing. This is seen as part of the canal. The, The rumor, I guess, I would hear is that they were talking about putting the uh, headquarters of the Canal Corporation into Guy Park Manor once they restored it, and they have been working on restoring it. But these folks have a different idea. Norm Boland said there were funds available for the restoration from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, but that money would have to be administered through the State Canal Corporation. Organizers also interested in getting help from the New York State Museum, which houses many of the materials that originally were displayed at uh, Guy Park Manor before the Elwood Museum moved in and before it was damaged. And Norm Boland said the group is particularly interested in getting the museum's help, that's the New York State Museum, with restoring the interior of the manor. Well, I see we're running out of time uh, from our Historians podcast with a fish story and a little bit of news about colonial history in the Mohawk Valley. Thank you, Dave Green, for joining us here. You're most welcome, Bob. And this has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.